Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, May 16th, and on today's Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about Elon Musk's negotiating tactics with Twitter and whether he will save or kill the company. Plus, we talk about Tom Brady's lucrative deal with Fox as he plans to join the NFL broadcasting booth, if he ever retires. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, that means it's Media Monday, which means I'm joined by boss man, John Kelly, um, to flatter each other mutually and talk about <laughs> um, our shared points of view on everything. Thank you for listening to our conversations. <laughs> uh, how you doing, John? I'm good, Peter. I can't believe we're already halfway through May. I don't know where 2022 is going. Same. 2021 went by fast. Now this year is going by fast. It's also um, going by really fast for Twitter uh, because they're on the edge of their seats over there. At, at the offices because Elon Musk is uh, trying to acquire the company, but then he'll drop a tweet early in the morning like he did on Friday saying, Twitter deal temporarily on hold pending deals supporting calculation that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. Basically, Elon is saying he's still not totally sure about this deal unless he can confirm there's not that many fake accounts on Twitter. What is he what is he doing here? Pretty stunning that there are fake accounts on Twitter, Peter. I, I assume that um, during <laughs> during his extensive diligence phase, he would have uh, uncovered that it was a, a totally uncorrupt and, and non-bot-filled platform. You know, when I saw this on Friday morning, I, I thought a couple of things. First of all, the guy's negotiating. Clearly, uh, there is no other suitor for Twitter. Twitter hired bankers. And the bankers, presumably, you know, before rendering their fairness opinions, talk to other potential suitors. If you think about who has that kind of, you know, it's not couch cushion money. Like, it's serious Mm -hmm. dough to compete with an all-cash offer. I think you're right on the negotiation front. It feels like the epilogue of a contract negotiation where it's like you're going back and forth between lawyers about, like, I need three more days of PTO. I need a wardrobe allowance. (laughs) And I need, like teeny bit more bump in equity. It's like, or else I'm walking away. You're like, no, you're not. You know, uh, This um, is an insight into the Peter Hamby snap negotiation. I always wanted no, to know what that clothing no. allowance looked like. <laughs> no, no, no. No wardrobe allowance anywhere. But uh, the other point on, on the fake bots thing is like, I know the left is like losing their mind over this idea that Elon is taking over Twitter as if, as if Twitter is like some like haven for good behavior and virtue and and like a a public good. I mean, like Twitter as a starting point sucks. He might make it better. And one of the reasons that might happen is he's, he actually has said like, I want to have human verification and like kill out a lot of like fake accounts and fake bots. So like the tweet that he put out sort of jibes with like at least one of his publicly stated strategies for like making the company more healthy. But on that question, I want to ask you about this tweet I saw yesterday, Jason Goldman, who used to work at Twitter back in the day. uh, And then he worked in the Obama White House as Obama's chief digital officer. Um, I believe that was his title. This is what Jason said. And again, he used to work at Twitter. Hard to see a non-fucked outcome for Twitter at this point. The most likely is that the deal closes and Elon kills the product. The only way he doesn't close is if he walks which kills the company. 
He has all the optionality. The company has none. It's just a big bummer. What is Elon doing right now in the negotiation process that's hurting Twitter? And then what could he possibly do when he gets there that could also kill Twitter? Man, this is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, what, what he's doing now is, is I think, probably making the, the company unappealing for elite engineers and, and elite executives. Uh, yeah. if, if I were a on-the-bench future CEO like Kevin Mayer or Tom Staggs, I would not want to take this phone call from Russell Reynolds to see if I was going to take over Twitter. I mean, it's possible Elon Musk is going to be the CEO of Twitter himself. We don't know that yet. But if I'm uh, a, a really pedigreed CFO, CIO, I may sit this one out. But there's something else that I take to heart here too, which is if you look at the short but poignant history of social media companies in the market, they follow an arc. They just follow it at, at very, very different speeds. So when you think of Friendster or MySpace, it, it, it's, ex, you know. I think about Friendster a lot. <laughs> I, I think we, you know, we, we could have been friends on Friendster um, back in the day. We were, we were both in college when, um, yeah. when that was a real thing. There's an arc, which is extraordinary fast adoption, high growth, and then an audience moves on. You even see it now at Facebook, which is undergoing its own sort of post-peak era here and, and looking for other ways to adopt. It's, it's moving meaningfully into products like hardware. Twitter, which has had a more challenged history than any of these companies and has relied entirely on advertising as a revenue stream, you know, given all these headwinds, you wonder, is there actually like this sort of euphoric fantasia of a future where Twitter has a extraordinary paid tier where the bots go away and it's an open town square for all this free speech, uh, where it has great engineers who are able to turn it into a, a marketplace for payment transfers or a blockchain where you can sell crypto. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> it, it, I mean, but seriously, or is it on a trajectory of like Polaroid? or Kodak, or Corning, or something that was once, you know, bigger than, than life itself, but follows the natural course of business, which, which happens in a much, much more exacting and, and high velocity, you know, timeframe in, in our, you know, high tech world than it did in the 20th century. So there are a lot of vectors pointing to the fact that Twitter is going to exist in the future as a smaller company, which is at odds with what seems to be the Musk plan of bringing in banks and outside investors, taking it private, making changes, and flipping it back to the public markets in, in three to five years and, and making extraordinary fortunes. I, in fact, I, I would hazard to say that the biggest bull case for Twitter, and it may be the only real bull, bull case for Twitter, is Musk. Is that this is a guy who is a obviously singular genius, whatever you think about his politics or his like, you know, Rogan, Ganja, Antics, or, or Dogecoin. Like, they, like they, the, guy, the guy is, like, potentially, you know, Einstein jobs level, like, you know, singular. Yeah, this is just, like, symptomatic of our polarization, like, in terms of politics and our information bubbles. Like, Elon Musk is neither automatically good nor automatically bad. He might ruin Twitter. And I also don't believe that, like, whatever deck he put out or his idea that he can, like, quintuple Twitter DAU in like five years or something, I think is bananas. But like, if you think this guy is just inherently bad because he says the word free speech a lot, you know, you need to log off. <laughs> um, John, I want to take a quick break and then I want to come back and, and actually talk to you about sports, or as my friends and I like to say, the crucible of sport.
Welcome back, everybody. I, I called sports the crucible of sport because this is like forgotten to history because it happened before Trump. But like one of my favorite things from the 2012 campaign uh, between Obama and Mitt Romney was I think like the last Monday night football game before Election mm-hmm. Day. They booked Obama for like a halftime interview or a pregame interview and they booked Romney and they were like back to back interviews. And they weren't like asking them about like the debt ceiling or anything. They were just, it was like sort of one of those like <laughs> relatability interviews, oh my God. but like a big audience. And Obama gets on and maybe even the Chicago Bears are playing. He's talking about like nickel defense and like, you know, gap closings. And like, he's just like totally literate in football and sports generally. And we know that about him. And then Mitt Romney comes on whose only real connection to sports is that he like saved the Olympics <laughs> back in the day in Salt Lake City. And he like had this line and I, I'm paraphrasing it now, but and, like they were like, you know, what do you think about this matchup tonight? And Romney's like, well, you know, it's just that one reason I love sports is that character is forged in the heat of battle <laughs> and the crucible of sport. And it was just like a classic Mitt Romney moment. Yeah. Like, it reminded me of like in that scene in the Forty Year Old Virgin when Steve Carell is like asked about like hooking up with a with a girl and he describes her chest as like two bags of sand. Like it was <laughs> it was like like a guy who's never watched a football game trying to talk like a normal guy and he was just like classic robot Romney. Anyway, yeah, I, th- I think Mitt Romney's only exposure to football is is uh, <laughs> seeing a, a game in the, in the corner of his country club after uh, after finishing eighteen. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I bring that up because uh, Lachlan Murdoch confirmed a New York Post report. Is that right, John? It is the New York Post. Yes, New York uh, Post scoopy that Fox will pay three hundred seventy-five million dollars to Tom Brady over ten years to do uh, commentary for Fox's NFL broadcast. By the way, I think Puck should launch a sports vertical. Everyone tweet at John. Uh, tell him we want sports. <laughs> The business of sports, what's really going on in the world of sports. But is Tom Brady worth that much money? Like for a broadcast? I mean, people turn on football games that they want to watch. They don't really care that much who's broadcasting, right? Well, I think that part of that is changing in in a world where linear TV, which is a core, you know, the core of, of new Fox's business is about news and sports. And to ascertain those sports rights requires, you know, billions of dollars. But with a league or, uh, like the NFL, you have to also commit to them that you take very seriously who's in the booth and that you'll make a great product. The, the NFL's image is locked into its brand and product. I think the market really changed with Tony Romo a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He came right from the field to the booth and Romo was electrifying. Like, I'm not sure how much yeah. you watch the, the CBS um, yeah, yeah. broadcast, but you know, Jim Nance to me is just literally like pouring lemonade over and over again. It's so <laughs> boring. And Romo is just jumping out of the booth, explaining what's going on at each audible, talking about like defensive switches and like if they're going nickel a dime on third down or, you know, from 5-3 to a 4-3 to a, a and is able to dissect these details at such a microscopic, extraordinary level. And he's having an incredible time doing it. And I think it has changed everything. It's certainly by contrast, made the ESPN Monday night duo of, of Booker McFarlane and Joe Tessitore seem like pretty old hat by comparison. And ESPN had to had to really shake that up. Totally. And, you know, Tom Brady is, is good at football. He's extremely handsome. And he's super famous because of both of those things. But like, is he funny? Is he quick witted? Like, I don't I don't know. I was texting my kitchen cabinet of, of buddies on our text thread. And I asked them about 
what they think about Brady. And these are like both people who like football and don't. My friend Tyler says, doesn't he have the personality of a cactus? My friend Scott said, yeah, sure. I guess I'll watch an NFL game that I wasn't otherwise going to watch because NFL star Tom Brady is doing color commentary. Said nobody, but who apparently worth $375 million. (laughs) And then my friend Tim said, are they sure he's going to be good? Joe Montana was terrible when he did Monday Night Football for one year. Do people watch a football game based on who the announcer is? Who is watching a Tom Brady called game? On the other hand, he's like one of the 10 biggest celebrities in the country. So what do I know? And right. like, I think that's sort of what they're betting on. Tell Tim hi for me, by the way. I haven't talked to that guy in a while. Um, I think that people do watch increasingly for the person in the booth. I okay. will tell you a personal story, though, uh, that will shed some light on this. Uh, as I have um, mentioned sparingly over time, I was trying to buy a couple of new TVs and suffered the, the, the backlog of the supply chain issues. And so I ended up watching just a lot of like ESPN plus garbage on my computer to, to pass time mm-hmm. in the evenings. And so I did dabble in Man in the Arena, which is the Tom Brady version of the oh, okay. Michael Jordan classic about uh, the 98 Bulls. So Man in the Arena is, is the sort of long infomercial that tells you the familiar Brady story from, you know, seventh round draft pick who runs a terrible 40 at the Combine to like, increasingly, you know, smooth world champion who marries Giselle somehow like gets skinnier every year and the dimple in his chin gets bigger every year and, <laughs> and just wins and wins and wins. And I mean, uh, and like just basically is freebasing avocados all the time. And, and a, a couple of things that stood out to me, the, the guy is an incredible football talker. So in terms of like, you know, the intellect that Romo has on the subject, Brady can compellingly match him wit for wit, obviously. But to your homie's points, like the, the guy is boring. Like he is authentically boring. And he is also, I think now, a creature of his own sort of bubbly worldview where he's always wearing these TB12 hats to hype his sort of, you know, supplemental empire. And the kind of defining trait of the showman in the arena is that Brady's sort of a loner, you know? He was the youngest child. He had all these sisters. He was padded a lot. He was underestimated. He was kind of treated like shit by Belichick for 20 years, even though he's unquestionably the greatest quarterback ever. Players rolled in and out. There's no Pippin, you know? I mean, maybe Julian Edelman later in his career was, was, was sort of a, a buddy of his. He played for years with Aaron Hernandez, although no one ever talks about that anymore. I feel like Gronk could be his Pippin a little bit, but they don't hang out. Yeah, I think Brady's a loner. Will it make engaging television? Will it be as good as Media Monday? I don't think so. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, since we did a little callback to Friendster earlier in that era, um, can you name the biggest talent mistake in Monday Night Football history? Uh, you're probably going to say Dennis Miller? Rush Limbaugh, baby. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That really happened? Yeah, Rush Limbaugh. Remember, and then he got fired because he said something racist about Donovan McNabb, I guess? Yeah, I exactly. That's exactly yeah, yeah. right. It, it is funny. Occasionally, um, you do look back, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but can't you look back on things like that and think, what, what were these people thinking? <laughs> Seriously, like some, some well-compensated person made that decision and many other people agreed with them. What's going on here? Yeah, this is, sorry, uh, I'll let you go in a second. I'm just going to read to you. This is a Washington Post piece looking back on Limbaugh's tenure. It was 2003. I think it was less than a month. Yeah, he like did like three games and then they were doing an Eagles game and Rush said that 
Donovan McNabb was overrated because of his skin color. <laughs> anyway, he got canned. Yeah, McNabb, who took the Eagles to four uh, championship games uh, and one Super Bowl. They lost by, by, by three of the Patriots. You've you triggered me, though, Peter. The, the only person who I thought ever was in that booth and was pulled out too soon was Tony Kornheiser, who yeah. I, I people of our generation I love him. Uh, yeah, PTI addict since, since day one. And um, that guy didn't get his full shake. It's, it's too bad. Uh, I'm with you on that. Well, as you say that, I am on the Zoom right now wearing my now uh, defunct Washington football team hat. I'm wearing my Cincinnati Bengals underwear to show my split loyalties. Um, just kidding, I'm not. But shout out to Kornheiser and the Commanders. Ugh. All right, thanks, John. <laughs> See you next All week. All right, talk to you later, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.